You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 52. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are talking with Lisa Callie Crampton, a biologist and researcher who is currently serving as the project leader for the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project in Hawaii. This is a super interesting interview in which we discuss the work that Callie is doing to reverse the declines of the three endangered bird species that are found only on the island of Kauai. We also discuss the larger implications of this work and the importance of issues like climate change and invasive species in these efforts to save Kauai's endemic forest birds. Let's jump into this interview. All right, I am here with Lisa Callie Crampton, who is the project leader of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. How are you doing, Callie? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. My um, pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start off just by asking you to tell me a little bit about the area where you work in Hawaii. Um, I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what the, these forests that you work in uh, on the island of Kauai, uh, what, what do they look like? I work in remnant native ohia forest. Ohia is the dominant rainforest tree throughout the Hawaiian Islands. And so I work in a remnant contiguous forest of ohia in the interior Alakai Plateau of Kauai Island. The Alakai Plateau is a high elevation plateau of a 25 kilometers squared forested area. Um, that is sort of where the initial, the original volcano in Hawaii used to be. What does it feel like to, to, to step into this forest? What does this feel like to spend time in these places? It's kind of mystic. It's kind of going back in time because you know that this is what the island used to look like all over once upon a time before humans arrived and started clearing the land for agriculture and then later on urban and industrial developments. So you sort of feel in a way it's a bit of a trip down memory lane and it's very quiet and serene and very green with little spots of color everywhere because there are lots of fruiting and flowering plants in the understory in Hawaii. It's, it's quite dense, but it's not impenetrable in most areas. So, you know, more dense than a pine woodland that you might find in the Intermountain West. But I, used, I grew up in British Columbia, and I would say this forest is a little bit easier to get through than a really dense Douglas fir forest with its understory of thorny salmonberry and, and devil's club. One of the reasons why is because almost all plants in Hawaii lost their thorns or never developed thorns when they came here because they didn't have any um, native herbivores. Hmm. So our forests are pretty easy to get through. They're not prickly. There's no wild rose. There's no, it's like, it's kind of nice. I, I wonder if you have a memory of the first time you stepped into uh, one of these forest ecosystems. You know, the first thing that strikes me, my first encounter as an adult with the Ohia forest was on the big island around the crater of Kilauea volcano. And 
for me, actually, the first thing is olfactory. It's the smell. And I don't know how much of that is the ohia itself and all the moss and the lichens of this really, really wet, damp forest and how much of that is like the sulfur of the volcano. But that's I, that's really my and I, I, I still smell it even here on Kauai. I still smell that smell, even though we don't have active volcanoes here on Kauai. So I think it must be something about that ohia forest. I'm, I'm wondering what inspired you to make this place your home? Well, as I just mentioned, I was a postdoc um, uh, on the Big Island and just loved the environment, loved the serenity um, and the beauty of the Hawaiian rainforest. And so after that um, postdoc wrapped up, I kept looking for ways to come back to Hawaii. And there's something very compelling about working in Hawaii in the middle of this extinction crisis that we are experiencing with the birds and the uh, invertebrates and the plants and feeling like you can do something to turn that around. Not only that, but Kauai Island is kind of my speed. It's a really easygoing place, lots of uh, agricultural areas still, and I have a young child. So I thought that it would be a really great place for a kid to grow up and be able to experience the outdoors on a daily basis because, of course, our weather is fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the species that you uh, that your research is focused on on Kauai? We focus on three forest birds, which is the, the language we use here in Hawaii to refer to passerines or songbirds. Um, that, and, and the reason why is because the, basically the only passerines or songbirds that we have left are restricted to this native forest habitat and these remnant fragments throughout the Hawaiian islands. So we study three endangered forest birds that are found only on Kauai and nowhere else, even in the Hawaiian islands. Their names are Puaiohi, which is the small Kauai thrush. Um, And I'm actually just looking at your website right now, and you have a picture of a wood thrush on it, one of your other um, conservation videos. Yeah, yeah. Puaiohi looks a lot like a wood thrush. Okay. In a lot of ways. Then we work on also two smaller species that are both honeycreepers, and honeycreepers are a family exclusive to Hawaii and the Hawaiian Islands. And those two honeycreepers, one species is Akikiki, which is the Kauai creeper. So it's a lot like a nuthatch or a brown creeper in that it works its way up and down tree trunks, pecking for insects in the bark and the moss. And the the third species, which the other honeycreeper is... Akeke, which is the Kauai Akepa. And it's a really interesting bird. It's bright yellow with a black mask and a forked tail. And it's a canopy specialist and it has a very slightly crossed beak. And what it does is it uses that beak to pry open leaf buds of the ohia trees to look for the grubs that are hidden within the ohia buds. How did you decide that these were the three species uh, that you would focus on? That is the mission of the project. The project receives its funding through the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Endangered Species Act, um, and from the state of Hawaii to do research and conservation on endangered species. So these, the Puaiohi was listed in 1967 uh, when the Endangered First, uh, Species Act first came to be and has been the focus of the project since the early 2000s. 
The Akikiki and the Akeke were only listed as endangered in 2010. So we have only been working on them aggressively since 2010. We also, as we can, opportunistically collect data on the remaining five other forest bird species here on Kauai, but they are not the focus of our work because our funding stream is very specifically devoted to endangered species conservation. Gotcha. So you're basically working on the three species that, that are considered endangered that are on the, the ESA. Exactly. Um, but also sort of opportunistically collecting information on, on the other uh, endemic forest birds that, that make their home in, in, in that um, forest ecosystem. Exactly. Um, are there other species, uh, other forest bird species on Kauai that are already extinct? Yeah, several have gone extinct even in the last few decades. The Kama'o, which is the big cousin of the Puyohi, it's another thrush, went extinct after the most recent hurricane, um, Hurricane Aniki in 1992. And prior to that, we lost the O'u and the O'o and the um, Akialoa and the Nukupu'u, which are all honey creepers. So those are those are the ones that we ha- know we have lost in recent memories. In addition to that, the fossil record documents that we lost uh, other species earlier on in time that aren't well documented. But we're really fortunate here on Kauai. I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. Here on Kauai, we still have eight of our native forest bird species, six of which are found on Kauai and nowhere else in the world. Um, not even elsewhere in Hawaii, and two of which are found throughout the Hawaiian Islands. And that's a pretty healthy avifauna compared to some of the other Hawaiian islands. What have you learned about these birds uh, through this research? Um, And maybe you have some examples of something particularly surprising you learned about one of these birds? Um, Yeah, there's, there's sort of neat tidbits. For example, right now we're actively involved in a conservation exercise for Akikiki and Akeke'e. And both of those species nest really, really, really high up in the canopy in tiny little twiggy branches at the end of the main branches. So they're really hard to access. So we don't know a whole lot about their nests. And everyone always thought that both Akikiki and Akike only laid two eggs, if, if that, per attempt. But um, last year, when we were tr- we, what we've been trying to do in this conservation exercise is we've been trying to collect the first eggs that the that the birds lay every spring and bring those eggs into captivity um, so that we can hatch birds out in captivity and and in that way bolster the population size. And we can talk about why we need to do this in a couple of minutes if you like. But um, the idea is you raise birds in captivity and then ultimately you can release them back into the wild. But they get raised sort of safe from anything that might threaten them in the wild. And in the process of doing all that, we discovered that Akike occasionally lay three eggs, not just not just two. So, I mean, those are just like little neat because these birds are so poorly known and so poorly studied that you can find out just little bits of interesting natural history like that. Um, but the major focus of our research is really to understand which of the many... Uh, human-induced problems, basically, that these birds are confronted with um, are driving population trends. So there's a number of kind of suspects, like if you think of it as a game of Clue, like was it done in the library with the rope or candlestick in the hallway or whatever, right? We were trying to figure out 
which of these different possible agents can be causing these extinctions that we talked about a few minutes ago um, and are causing ongoing declines of the remaining species and led to the endangerment of those three species. And there's, I think, maybe it's five different possibilities. So most of our research is trying to understand which is more important for which species. And it turns out that it differs. Like it's, it's not the same bad guy for all three species. So I think that's been one of the most illuminating things in my tenure here the last five years. Um, for example, one of the big issues is rat predation on nests. When the Hawaiian islands came up out of the ocean um, through volcanic activity, birds made it to the Hawaiian islands, but because the Hawaiian islands are so far away from any mainland and mammals aren't particularly good swimmers, no, no mammals made it to the Hawaiian islands. So our birds evolved in the absence of mammalian predators and kind of got to be blasé. Like they're not like a, a mainland bird that will startle off of a nest when a cat goes by or a rat goes by. They stay put. And so they're basically sitting ducks for rat predation. And it turns out that rat predation um, is a really big issue for the puaiohi, that thrush I was telling you about. But it's not such a big deal for the akikiki and the akike. So that's that's an interesting thing that we've been noticing through our research. So uh, do you have a sense of what is driving the declines for these other two bird species? Right. So there's, I guess in my mind, there's two primary things. And, and, and let me just go back one minute for a, second, for a second there. I think one of the reasons why rats aren't that big a deal is exactly because these two species nest in those tiny little twigs at the end of the trees where rats don't really feel like climbing, you know? So it's partly their habits that protects them from rats. But what we really think um, is going on with Akikiki and Akike is probably a little bit of a double whammy. First of all, that hurricane in Niki that came through in 1992 um, probably caused the direct deaths of several tens of birds of all the species up here, just blowing them off the island, basically. But it, it, it really changed the nature of the habitat, and it blew down a lot of those really big trees with those fine fine twiggy branches at the ends that those species like to forage and nest in. So I think it's really reduced the amount of habitat available to those species, even though we still have contiguous forest. It's not the kind of forest, not the old growth forest that they really like. And then to top it all off, about that same time, um, we got a ramp up um, of, of a disease here on the, in the islands that those birds are, have no immunity to. And that disease is avian malaria. So avian malaria was introduced to the Hawaiian Islands probably in the 1950s, and it's distributed by, um, by mosquitoes. And as with other island populations throughout the world, when animals are not exposed to a disease, they either don't develop the immunity, or if they had it, they lose it. Same with humans, right? So here they are faced with this novel disease, and as our our planet warms, um, mosquitoes are able to spread further and further throughout the Hawaiian islands. So it used to be that they were kind of restricted to sea level, but they wouldn't go into these high elevation mountain ranges that we have in the middle of our Hawaiian islands where it was cool and the, it was too, too cold for the mosquitoes to survive. And it's actually also too cold for the, that the malaria protozoan to develop. So we have these high elevation refuges in the forest in the middle of the islands. But as the planet warms, mosquitoes and this disease are able to invade further and further upslope into these refuges, and the, the refuges are shrinking in size. And that 
timing of that corresponds with the timing of the hurricane. So here we have these birds that are sort of reeling from the blow of the hurricane. And then on top of it all, that's why I was saying a double whammy. Now they're confronted with a new disease that they don't have any tolerance for. The good news is, is that we're slowly seeing some tolerance and resistance to the, to the disease developing. So that's, that's in, these, in these species. That's the, that's the really good news. And the forests are beginning to recover also. You basically sort of put forth, you know, two like big picture threats to these bird species. I mean, right. one one is climate change, which is sort of uh, two part, right? Because I'm sure, you know, climate change is going to cause, you know, uh, increased frequency and increased intensity of hurricanes, right? So, I mean, that threat right. is probably um, a, a lot more present um, than it, it, it would be without, the, you know, this, this climate change issue. Uh, but then also, you know, the, the increase in uh, temperature that... Um, increases the range of these mosquitoes, which are spreading this disease. And, um, I mean, this disease issue is, I mean, that's also very similar to the rat issue is, is, uh, invasive species, right? Um, it's not as obvious of an invasive species as the rats are, but, um, still a, a, a very similar threat. You mentioned that, you know, these birds on their own are starting to develop some immunity to this disease um, and that, you know, these forest ecosystems are finally starting to recover from this hurricane that came through back in the early 90s. Um, I mean, is, I guess I'm wondering, is there anything, are you guys doing anything directly to help mitigate the threats to these two bird species? Right. Well, so that's where I was going with this whole idea of bringing birds into captivity so that they can be safe from those threats. So... That's one one thing we're doing is we're maintaining a small percentage of the population in captivity so that they're not exposed to mosquitoes and they're not exposed to rats. And ultimately, when we have a better handle on those threats, we can release them or their progeny back into the wild. It's sort of what we call an insurance population. But the other there's a sort of complicated theory out there that if you can do more to increase the survival of birds, particularly those that are developing resistance on their own and have the genes for resistance so that they can breed. This is, you know, natural selection, right? So those birds can breed and pass on that resistance to their offspring, then you should be able to keep the evolution of resistance to diseases going up, ticking along at a, fa- at a faster pace. Whereas if those birds are getting removed from the population by rats, or if they're getting, um, or if they're starving to death because they don't have enough to eat, um, you're going to slow down the rate of that evolution of that resistance. So a lot of what we're doing is habitat restoration to make sure that these birds have enough to eat, trying to speed up the natural process of regeneration of the forest. Um, one major component of that is making sure that we don't, back to this invasive species theme that we've been talking about, we don't have an invasion of non-native plants into this area that would replace the native plants that these birds like to forage and nest in. Um, and then again, trying to keep the rat populations under control, even though rat predation isn't the biggest threat to Akikiki and Akike, um, it is, we still do lose some small portion of nests every year to rat predation. And we have no idea how many juveniles we lose from the population when they're first beginning to fly and kind of naive and not, you know, strong flyers. We have, we don't have any idea how much juvenile predation there is at all. So we feel like we've, we've installed this big rat grid uh, in our prime study site where most of the birds are. And it's a trap. It's a trapping grid with these fancy whiz bang, um, good nature traps that we, um, have received through donations from a number of our partners, but also that we raise money for through crowdfunding last, um, 
last year in a campaign called Birds Not Rats. And we have 100 traps out, 150 traps out now. We're going to put out another 100 this year. And these traps can uh, dispatch up to 20 rats before they need maintenance. So they're a huge improvement over your traditional snap trap where every single time it goes off, whether or not it kills a rat or a mouse, has to be reset. Um, so we're, we're really working hard on those, on those, on improving the survival of the birds in the forest. Would it be possible to completely eliminate rats from the island? Or is that just there are so many rats that that would be impossible? Yes. I mean, you're probably aware of a lot of eradications on islands of rats. It's, you know, the famous rat island, and they've been doing this aggressively in New Zealand. But in general, those kinds of eradications are only possible on smaller islands and, and ideally uninhabited islands. On an island the size of Kauai, um, with as many people as we have, it, it's, it's not possible. But the hope is to eradicate rats completely from small key areas. So for example, um, on the seabird front, we now in Hawaii have two predator-proof enclosures, one on Oahu and one here on Kauai, where they have built uh, a fence that cannot be penetrated by rats, cannot be climbed over by, by cats, and then they have trapped out all the rats and mice and cats from, from inside them. And the hope is that you could do something similar with forest birds, although it would never be a complete eradication because it, it, the terrain that we work in is so rough and rugged that you could never build a predator-proof fence. However, you could have a fenced area um, from which you, ongo in an ongoing fashion, removed rats with traps or with other means. Right at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that one of the reasons you felt compelled to work in Hawaii is because you felt like you needed to do something to um, to address this sort of crisis that's going on uh, with birds in Hawaii as a result yeah. of invasive species. What, what I guess I'm wondering is, um, I mean, is there frustration that goes along with that as you deal with these issues and, you know, are just constantly fighting this uh, population of rats? Yeah, sure. I think occasionally... I get really disheartened. Um, for example, we do a, every five years we do a, a survey throughout Kauai to monitor. It's, it's, a, it's a population level survey to monitor how many birds we have on the island. And the 2012, which was the, the last time we did it, numbers came back pretty grim. They had showed really steep declines of Akikiki and Akake compared to the previous survey five years prior to that. And that is actually what prompted um, the effort to bring birds into captivity and has really helped prompt also the public interest and our partner interest in getting the rat control going. So I guess on the one hand, you look at these numbers and you're like, oh, these species are declining so fast. On the other hand, you see an immediate response from tons of people, including elementary school kids on Oahu and and corporate donors and a veterinarian in, in California, as well as all of the partner agencies like Fish and Wildlife Service and um, American Bird Conservancy. And it's just so amazing that you, if you give people some hard and fast um, numbers or trends, they care. And they're, people, are want, people want to do stuff to help. So you kind of flip-flop back and forth between some of the doom and gloom and then 
immediate appreciation for the generosity of the human spirit is, is awesome. And then, you know, on top of it all, every day we're just, we do our jobs and we are committed to doing our jobs as well as we can. And we don't have time to think about how bad or good it is. We just are working hard, 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 you know? So I would say the frustration is sort of, is, is infrequent, but I can't, I can't say that it's never there. And, and, you know, of course, a lot of our, our long-term solutions involve huge changes in public policy. For, you know, for example, one of the things going on in Hawaii right now is an environmental impact statement to look at the impact, potential impacts of uh, air, aerial broadcast of rodenticide, so rat poison, basically, so that you could treat some of the offshore uninhabited islands of Hawaii in a, a similar fashion to what they've done in British Columbia or in New Zealand. You know, so you on an, an island where there are no people, you could fly over with helicopters and drop rat bait. That is the way that we are going to eradicate rats and mice from those islands, so that they can become seabird homes. And the the great news is that that is happening. The great news is that we, the state and the Fish and Wildlife Service, have got together and have put out a draft environmental impact statement for public review. Of course, the thing is, is it's a public process, right? So it takes two or three years and you've got to just be patient and bide your time. Those are all, but there are very important advances that are happening. Like on every level, people are getting together and making things happen for conservation in Hawaii. This sort of brings up the question of how are these three bird species doing, you know, as we look back over the past few decades at population estimates um, I mean, how steep are these declines? You know, I mean, I know that these are small populations of birds, but, you know, I'm curious to know, like, what population estimates you might have and, and uh, you know, how steeply these uh, bird species have declined over the past few decades. Right. So, Tuayohi, it looks like, is not declining at all. Tuayohi is that thrush that I mentioned earlier. Right. Um, it looks like it got... Fairly from it's very hard to get um, population estimates for Puyohi because a it's really rare, b it's really secretive and cryptic, and c it lives in the bottom of stream beds where it's it's just it's really hard to detect it and it's really hard to use any of our traditional censuses because they most of our censuses use linear transects and these guys are in twisty windy streams. Right. Nonetheless. From every best guess we have about this species, it looks like they got hard hit after Iniki and were down to only a few hundred individuals, but rebounded really quickly because these guys are really productive, really, really fecund. Um, and ever since the early 2000s have been at about 500 birds and continue to stay at about 500 birds. So not a lot of birds. We're not by no means out of the woods. On the other hand, they don't seem to be declining. They seem to be holding their own where where they have good habitat and where we can protect them from rats. Um, and they seem to not be very susceptible to disease. So that's great news. The um, Akikiki on the other, and Akike on the other hand, as I alluded earlier, have had really steep declines. I mean, I think Akike is like 90% declines over the last 10 or 15 years wow. or something like that. Um, and they're down to fewer than a thousand birds right now. The Akikiki had a much earlier decline um, and are now down to about somewhere fewer than 500 birds. We're not exactly sure how many because when birds get to be so rare, you end up with huge confidence intervals, which I know is science speak, but a lot of variation around your estimates and not a lot of confidence that you can have a pinpoint estimate. So somewhere fewer than 500 birds. 
but their declines seem seem to have even out over the last five years as they got as they got to this very small tenuous population so um, really yeah there is cause to, I mean I don't want anyone to think that there's no cause for concern for these birds but I also want them to know that there's cause for hope because I think there's lots of things we can do we have lots of new tools in our basket and we have lots of tools coming down the pipeline to be able to save them. And the best thing of all is that more and more people are becoming aware of what's going on in Hawaii from podcasts like yours. That's our hope is to teach people more about what's going on on the ground and show them that there are these glimmers of hope, you know, even in these issues that seem very daunting, which I think this this issue of invasive species and particularly on the Hawaiian Islands, but on island ecosystems all across the world. I mean, it, it seems really uh, daunting and there's a lot of doom and gloom there, but it's it's nice to hear about positive things that are happening and new developments that that sort of hold the hope to uh, make sure that these species survive. But I do kind of want to take a step back here and just kind of look at the big picture uh, before we close out this conversation. And, you know, this issue of invasive species, I mean, this is a global issue, as you know. There are many anthropologists and archaeologists who who look at this this sort of global issue of invasive species um, and, you know, will say that we've entered a new epoch called the homogenocene, which is sometimes used interchangeably with the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the homogenocene uh, uh, specifically, you know, sort of references this exchange of organisms across previously impenetrable geographic barriers, um, uh, you know, caused by human activity. The, the insinuation here is that this sort of biological exchange that we have created, that humanity has created, um, is, is inevitable, you know, um, and sort of ongoing and continuous um, and will sort of ultimately result in just generally a more homogenous, less biologically diverse world. Right. Um, I mean, is this really inevitable? I mean, you know, you're, what the project you're working on, you know, you're taking like these, these specific examples of these few bird species that are threatened by you know, this issue of invasive species. And, you know, you're saying, you know, there is hope to save these species, um, despite the threats that they face. The question here is, you know, thinking very long term Mm -hmm. um, for these uh, uh, kawaii forest bird populations. I mean, is this the type of situation where for these birds and for these ecosystems to remain uh, healthy and remain intact? Um, is there going to have to be continuous human involvement? I think it's quite likely that on the main Hawaiian islands, we will have to be continuously involved and always trying to stay ahead of the next threat. Um, but I, um, I almost wonder if the word isn't more is not vigilance more than involvement. Like I think that one of the main things that's happened in the last several decades is just this recognition of, you know, this invasive transport machine that is the human species. And now that we're aware of how many things we cart around with us no matter where we go, I think that we can do a lot to stop them from getting there in the first place. So, and, you know, awareness is, to me, always the first step. So the other main thing that's happening in the Hawaiian Islands right now is really stepping up bio, bio what we call biosecurity, trying to stop things from getting here that don't, that don't belong here that not only could harm all of our native wildlife and our plants, our native plants, but humans, no one, no one wants to see outbreaks of all, all the, you know, the huge human diseases that go through the rest of the world, but that humans are largely isolated from here in Hawaii. So I think that because of our own self-interest, 
um, we have a lot of hope in, in getting better biosecurity and being more vigilant. And that will be the, the first step in protecting our native um, species as well as us. I, I like the way that you sort of, you know, repositioned that and talking about how it's, it's not necessarily vi- vigilance, but it's sort of a commitment to, you know, working with these ecosystems and working with these biological systems, you know, continuously on an ongoing basis um, in, in order to conserve them and to conserve these animals that live there. Right. I mean, the other thing is the, the whole climate change thing, right? I mean, we're going to suffer as much as anybody else if we don't get a grip on grip on climate change. Like it, that problem has to be dealt with for not just for native species of wildlife for plants, for, for humans. We, we, you know, we really have to change the way we act in the world, I think, for our own benefit as well. Yeah, we have to recognize that you know, we are just one more species um, and that we are sort of a functioning members of every ecosystem that we inhabit. And we have to there's responsibility that comes with that. Right. Exactly. So I'm wondering, just to close things out here, if there's anything that you can point to that our listeners could maybe do to help protect Hawaii's forest birds specifically or maybe just, you know, any other animals that are threatened by this uh, uh, invasive species issue, uh, this sort of ongoing biological exchange that we're talking about. Right. Well, I think we've, you know, basically touched on two of them, but I'll just reiterate them. One is everyone needs to do their part to slow down climate change, turn out lights, bike, whatever that is, you know, switch to solar on the rooftops, whatever. That's going to be a huge thing for the entire planet, but especially Hawaii's forest birds. And the thing is, too, and and biosecurity, make sure you clean your boots when you go hiking in Idaho and then you go hiking up in British Columbia. Don't take Idaho species to British Columbia. And likewise, don't bring British Columbia species back to Idaho and don't bring them to the Hawaiian Islands. So be very, very um, aware of, of what you might be carrying with you. But then, yeah, beyond that, if you're, um, I think all of these organizations need national and international support. And there's many ways that your listeners can do that. You know, one is with their pen. They can write letters to the editor. They can write their congressperson. They can, whatever they want to do. The other was with your money. All these organizations need money to buy the traps that they want to buy and everything else. So those are, those are all really important things to do. And then, of course, if you have listeners here in the Hawaiian Islands, it's really important here in Hawaii that you not let mosquitoes breed. Don't don't have standing water. And that goes for a lot of places. Don't have standing water that you don't need around your place. And if you have standing water, screen it. Um, don't let your cats outdoors. Cats eat native wildlife no matter where they're found. Cats need to be inside where they can't get at the gecko that might be native to your area or the shrew or the bird. Those are really important things for everybody everywhere, I think. Yeah, you, you've touched on a, a couple. I mean, those are all really important points. But you've touched on a couple that I'll just um, sort of reiterate here because I think they're, they're things that even folks who consider themselves conservationists or environmentalists, you know, maybe don't always necessarily think about. One is the cat issue, which is really important. That's important everywhere, you know, not just on the Hawaiian Islands, but here in Idaho and basically everywhere. Keep your cats inside. <laughs> yeah, That's a really easy one. Um, but the other one that you brought up is another really easy one that I think a lot of people don't think about, myself included. I'm guilty of this, which is, you know, cleaning off your boots um, when you go travel, even if it's just from one state to the other, even if you're not going to, you know, someplace like the Hawaiian Islands. Yeah. Um, you know, you there's always there is still that potential to transport, uh, you know, organisms uh, to an area where they shouldn't be um, that that can cause unforeseen consequences. So um, that, that's that's another really important one for, for folks to keep in mind that, that maybe a lot of people uh, don't necessarily think about. 
So yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. And uh, yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I learned a lot here, and and you know I think I've I've sort of gained a little bit of hope here as well. You know I sort of have this perspective of you know, the conservation issues that are going on with forest birds in the Hawaiian Islands as this, you know, sort of very daunting issue. Um, but it's it's nice to hear that there are some glimmers of hope and that you guys are having some success on the conservation efforts that, that you're working on over there. Yeah, well, great. And it's really helps to have people like you spreading the word about Hawaii. And as we've mentioned several times, how, in a way, Hawaii is just a microcosm for what's going on in the rest of the world, maybe just at a faster scale here in Hawaii. Well, thanks a lot, Callie, for coming on the show. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. That was our interview with biologist and researcher Lisa Callie Crampton. I love hearing Callie's passion for her work and her absolute dedication to protecting these endangered bird species. It's also really wonderful to hear about the ways in which these endangered birds are actually adapting to the changing situation on the island of Kauai. Often when we hear about invasive species problems on the Hawaiian Islands, uh, specifically, there's very little to be hopeful about, but this is certainly not the case here. As usual, you can learn more about Callie's work uh, with the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Program over on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC52. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. 